I'm Jack Kropp, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio, and welcome everyone today. Before we get started, I'm going to just uh, say there's a phone number, 570-881-5825. If you want help, if you know someone that needs help, call me. We'll be more than happy to help anyone. Today, our guest is Jeff Brown, and he's the author of Inspiration with Explanation, and it's a daily guide to recovery, and it's it helps us walk through recovery and we're going to talk about Jeff's story we're going to talk about the book and we're going to talk about recovery and, and helping others and today's special we have a special guest host with us today we got Karen Bellis with us today welcome Karen welcome Jeff Jeff you were on last season and the people who have been listening to the show right along know that but the the 45 or 48 minutes we get here really wasn't enough time for us to to do justice by you last time, Jeff. And I wanted you to come back, and you were gracious enough to say yes. And I, I just wanted, I like talking to you. And I like talking about recovery with you. And, and Karen and I are good friends, and we like to talk about this together. So in order to get started, Jeff, just for people that are new listening, let's talk a little bit about how did you end up in recovery? Obviously, you're in recovery, and which means at some point you had an addiction issue. What was that all about, Jeff? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it, Jack. Oh, uh, we appreciate you being here. And thanks, Karen, for coming in too. Uh, at, I had a pretty good childhood, so I, I didn't have a lot of the the typical uh, addictive type of stuff growing up. I, I didn't come from an abusive home. My parents aren't alcoholics and addicts. Uh, Everything in my life went pretty well up until about the age of 13. And at that point, it, it honestly was just a failed relationship that really got the best of me and and kind of brought this on. So the this fear of being alone kind of set in. Wait, stop for one second, Jeff. At 13 years old, you had a failed relationship? I, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. That, and that did that, Karen, come on now, 13 years old? Oh, I can relate. You can? <laughs> I guess you see that. I'm amazed by that. At 13 years old, a, re a broken up relationship caused a problem for you. So most kids are still playing like Little League Baseball at 13, right, Jeff? Well, yeah, I had just finished that, and I was on the high school baseball team at this point. But, uh, yeah, that, that really, it really kind of threw me for a loop. It was the first time in my life that the thought of not having, of being alone kind of crept into my mind and, and in a troubling fashion prior to that. It I didn't really think about it much, you know, but at that particular moment, yeah, that, that, that thought that I often define addiction as a fragile mind's inability to cope with difficult circumstances. And that's, that's what happened at that moment. I, for the first time in my life, got a circumstance that came into my life that I didn't know what to do about it. And it, it frightened me. And I don't like to get into semantical spheres or debates, but being alone and loneliness are two different things. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I, I spend a lot of time alone because of what I do. Karen, you spend a lot of time because of your job. But you're not lonely during that time. I'm not lonely when I'm in the car traveling. There's a difference between being alone and loneliness, right, Jeff? Absolutely. And uh, I do like to explain that a lot of times because most of the people that I present that as a major part of the problem, that almost everybody says, well, I don't really mind being alone. And you're absolutely right. I'm not talking about, you know, you got three hours to yourself on a Sunday afternoon kind of alone. I'm telling you, in my head, 
this girl was my soulmate, my one shot at happiness that God put here for me, <laughs> and now she was gone. I'm going to die alone was kind of the way it was, was working out in my mind. I was going to be alone forever and not have somebody to share my life with. You know? So at 13 years old, you had it in your head already that because this didn't work out, you were going to be alone the rest of your life? It, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't know how many, you know, a lot of this obviously is in hindsight. At the moment, I didn't, don't know if I knew what I was thinking at all. But in hindsight, as I'm you know, going through the process and through the 12-step process specifically, I started revisiting those moments and seeing them a lot more clearly now, you know, 20 years down the road. As a, in hindsight, it's always easier to see rather than being in the midst of it. But, yeah, that's, that's basically what it came down to. I, I believed in the idea of the soulmate and, you know, that was my one shot at happiness, and I lost it. Now it was doomed forever. That was that was the way my brain processed that. When, when I was eight years old, I started to drink, but I didn't have any feelings. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't I didn't drink like you're saying. You know, you had this feeling that you're going to be alone, or your life was shattered. I didn't have those feelings. I just started to drink because it was perfectly normal at eight years old in an Irish Catholic family for me to take a sip of a beer or have a few drinks. That, that was just perfectly normal. I didn't realize, and, and I'm saying this because of what you just said, Jeff, because of hindsight. Everything is 20-20 is in hindsight. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Billy Carter said 20, all hindsight is 20-20, but ain't worth a damn. <laughs> but, you know, but that's how it is. I mean, looking backwards, yeah, now I realize there were certain things going on in my eight-year-old mind. And I anesthetized them with alcohol. And, but I didn't have any clue that's what I was doing. And, and, and Karen, when you started to use, did you know that that's what you're doing? Were you, and did you know you were anesthetizing feelings? Absolutely not. And that's the whole thing with addiction and alcoholism is you're burying those feelings. And until you get into a program and uncover this stuff and get to the solution, then you you realize that's what you were doing because it was all, you know, I had a great life as well with my family and, but I experienced these feelings that I wasn't good enough. I, I mean, I had a, a lot of feelings that, you know, were very uncomfortable for me. And the only way I could get rid of those feelings was to drink. And, and that's where it led to. And, and I point this out on every show you said you had a wonderful life growing up i had what looked like the leave it to beaver life growing up i mean you know my father worked for a public utility had a great job we had a clean house we had a new car all the time you know addiction doesn't doesn't indicate that you came from under the bridge addiction is everywhere it's in every walk of life it's in every social socioeconomic stratus there is anybody can be an addict right jeff Absolutely, absolutely. It, do, it definitely does not discriminate. It, it, and, and we see that you know, it, as we trek through recovery in these facilities, in the rooms, uh, everywhere we go, we see it. You know, in fact, some of the literature even points it out pretty obviously, saying, you know, we're people that normally wouldn't mix. We're, you know, any recovery-based group of people are you're not people that normally would spend their time together. Uh, right. You don't have any clue, Jeff, how many times I've whispered that my friend Eric and I sit together just about every day at, at meetings. And how many times have I leaned over and whispered to him, would you drink with anybody in this room? I mean, <laughs> these aren't the people I was with on a daily basis. Now, that's a good thing because those people that I was with back then, 90% of them are either still out there or dead. So, I mean, yeah, we have to change what we do and how we do it. Uh, 
so Jeff, you were 13 years old. You started to do what happened? Well, very similar to what Karen said. You know, once uh, I, again, I didn't realize it was the fear of being alone, but I knew it was an uncomfortable feeling that I didn't like, and I didn't want to just sit in it. And every time I dumped a little alcohol on that bad feeling, it went away for a little while. So I basically, again, in hindsight, I spent 18 years treating my fear with alcohol. Every time it cropped up, I would drink it back down. You know, the next day it would come back again, I'd drink it back down again and on and on and on for 18 years. Uh, that's how I treated it. But at, at that moment, when I first realized that that would make that fear go away, that feeling go away, is when I really, it became all that mattered. You know, I quit the baseball team at the, uh, doing something I loved. I stopped caring about my grades and my classes. None of that mattered much anymore. And it it just started ramping up. I love when I, uh, I read one of the original 12-steppers wrote in his story that he was an only child and perhaps that brought on the selfishness that, it, that brought on his alcoholism. And, and that's what happened. All I could focus on was that I was afraid, it didn't feel good, and I needed to do whatever I needed to do to make that feeling go away, even if it was step on you to do it. So the selfishness really started coming right behind that fear. All right. We're going to take a break. Um, and thank some of our sponsors and we'll come right back and get and get this going some more jeff okay. okay we're back and uh jeff before the break you said that um you started your your road on addiction when you were 13 and you went for 18 years so about 31 years old something changed right it, it did um and right before the break, I was talking about how the selfishness kind of worked its way into my life. and uh, But it was kind of strange. you know. But again, I, I read in a piece of recovery-based literature that selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of our trouble. And I actually didn't know there was a difference between those two things because I wasn't the type of selfish, and, and I've run into a lot of people with this same issue that, like, I wasn't selfish like a spoiled child that wouldn't share his toys. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't robbing a lot of people and stealing, but the self-centeredness where I thought about myself a lot and was afraid of what other people thought of me and things like that, that was running amok in my life. All I really, I was loaded with social anxiety because I was so terrified about what everybody else thought of me and how they viewed me. So that was the kind of selfishness that was more prevalent in my life than the other one where I was, you know, the mind, mind, mind type of selfishness that wasn't really there as strongly. But through 18 years of that, you know, again, in hindsight, I'm realizing that people don't really want to spend a lot of time with people that are overly selfish and always taking and never giving. So by 31, there weren't many people left in my life that wanted to be around me. You know? All right. And to make a point here about what you're saying is there is a difference like you said, between being self-centered and selfish. Yeah. Now, I know, and it was myself, with my left hand, I can be giving you every penny I have. Here, take it, or take my car, take whatever it is I'm giving away. But I'm not doing it for the right reason. I'm doing it for me, not for you. And that's the difference, because I'm doing it so you say, oh, he's a nice guy. I'm doing it so everybody in the bar room says, oh, what a great guy. He just bought everybody a drink. 
giving has to be, in my opinion, because you want to help someone else. It's not for the accolade that you receive when you give. And I have found that most people that I have met in recovery have started at that at that broken point where all they think about is themselves. Even when they're doing something nice or trying to do somebody something for someone else, they only think about themselves. What's in it for Jack? What's in it for Karen? What's in it for Jeff? What is in it for me? And it, the disease that we all have is more. So even if it's a pat on the back, we want more pats on the back. If it's more people saying you're a wonderful guy and... and it borders on narcissism. I mean, we get to the point where that it becomes narcissistic, that we only think about ourselves. Karen, did you experience that in your addiction, that all you thought about was you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would do things for people, but, you know, I, I expected the thank you and the pat on the back, and, and that made me feel better, so I thought. And But like you said, you wanted more, so you just kept doing more good things, but with not good motives. With and the wrong intentions. Exactly. The motive was absolutely not pure. But today, that's a different story when you're in recovery. It's it's truly about putting others first. If and you're working a recovery program, that's going to be successful. Absolutely. And, you know, today it's about being a purpose. Per, you know, your purpose is to help others without any motive. And that's actually the best feeling in the world. So, Jeff, now you're 31 years old and, and life is now at the pinnacle of a mess. It's the worst it can be, right? Yes. What happened? I, like a lot of people, eventually got to that point where I, I had destroyed everything worthwhile in life and, and lost most of, of what I had. Uh, and one day I sat down on my bedroom floor and put a gun in my mouth and gave myself the change or die ultimatum and uh it obviously that was was pretty frightening you know i i had mentioned it previously in life you know you throw the the idea of of suicide around when you're neck deep in alcoholic insanity but it was usually that even that was a desperate plea for attention most of the time this time it wasn't i wasn't calling people telling them i was going to kill myself i was alone in my home wasn't calling any of my friends and that scared me enough to to finally take action and do something about it uh i wasn't sure what <laughs> exactly to do about it but i knew i needed to do something you know so you know and, and it was actually probably maybe a, a, a year or two prior to that that i began to realize really that i had a drinking problem but the unmanageability of life wasn't full-blown yet the wheels hadn't really completely come off just yet so then and, and that's that's kind of you know the, the first part of this process where we're admitting that we have a problem the second half of that first part is the unmanageability so I admitted I had a problem but wasn't desperate enough to do anything about it yet and that's that's what happened at at that 31 32 years old I became desperate enough to take action to correct the problem I couldn't live in it or with it anymore and and to both of your points, that that is ultimately, I love the idea, and that that idea has been prevalent on my mind all day today about <clears throat> doing the right thing for the wrong reasons with this selfishness. I, I've come to the absolute conclusion that doing the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right reason still makes it all wrong. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, you just... Um, 
you realized when you, that some, your life was a mess and you needed that it wasn't going right. I also like to talk about the fact that everybody's road to recovery is their own. Because what, how you get to recovery, how Karen gets to recovery, how Carly gets to recovery, and how I get there are four different paths. They're, they're, they're truly individual roads to recovery. Because I came to recovery not thinking I had a problem. I truly did not believe that there was anything wrong with my life. I had been bankrupt three times. We were always in financial trouble. We were scrambling. I owned a, a landscaping company that, you know, it, I thought was this I, the grandiose thoughts I had, I thought I was like the biggest and best in the world. In reality, my wife was just funneling money into it to keep us alive. But I didn't see a correlation between alcohol and these problems. At the insistence of a family member, my wife, at the, I, I went to a recovery meeting. I walked in and said, hey, maybe I have a problem. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. Now, I haven't had a drink since then, and that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean life immediately flipped a switch and became outstanding because I never admitted I was powerless over alcohol. I never admitted that my life was unmanageable. I just stopped drinking. And, and that there's a big difference between not drinking and being sober. And it took a long time of not drinking and, and maybe seven, eight years of just not drinking before I was willing to surrender and, and truly understand what it means to get sober and start to recover. And I don't know, Karen, when you first came to recovery, did the switch flip and you were great right from day one? No, not at all, because I didn't know. First of all, I didn't think I, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to have a problem because I wasn't that woman under the bridge. You know, that was my whole, you know, vision of it and um but I got to that point where I needed help and when I got into the the program of uh recovery you know for me putting down the drink was just the beginning the I still had those uncomfortable feelings you know I put down the drink but I was really a dry drunk for many years and I didn't deal with the feelings that were inside of me I didn't deal with that fear and that's what it came down to. And until I truly got honest with myself and found the truth within, and Jeff is such a big <laughs> help to me with that, that's when my life started to change, until I started to see the truth. And that's when my life really started to change. So Jeff, now you realize that life is a mess. Did you get help somewhere? Did you go to a treatment program, Jeff? I did, well, to a fellowship, not to a recovery center. Or okay, so you didn't go to a treatment center, spend 28 days. You walked into a recovery program off the street. Yes. Just like I did. Yeah. And from that first day, did your life turn around? Actually, it did, yes. And that is, that, right, to prove your point, everybody does come in this, into this and at this a different way, in a different place in their mind. And, and it did for me. That first day in recovery, my life was permanently altered. Um I'm not going to say that I walked out of that first meeting happy, joyous, and free, obviously, but by the end of my first day in recovery, I did know there was a solution, and, and I knew that I was going to do whatever it took to, to get it, to achieve that goal. Um, you know, the, at the gathering, I, I didn't get a lot of what I really felt like I needed, but afterwards, when I called someone else that I knew was also in recovery and started asking them questions, and I got some one-on-one some -on -one attention and some more detailed information than yeah he by the end of the night 
he had convinced me that there absolutely was a way out other than suicide, <laughs> which I really didn't believe was possible anymore. So that and that level of encouragement was important. And, and, and I love this idea. One of my favorite quotes is uh, a guy named Gerthy said, on all peaks lies peace. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. You know, on all peaks lies peace. It doesn't matter how you go up the mountain. There might be a hundred different paths up that mountain, but at the top of it is the same thing for all of us. And that's, that's the beauty of this. Like the, the simple analogy I like to use is if I walk into a dark room and I can't find my way around because I can't see because it's dark, there is only one solution. Light is the only solution to dark. There might be four or five different lights in that room that I can turn on to see, but light is the only solution. And, and that, that is the beauty of this. The three of us came at this a different way and it, it affected us all differently. But you know, as we're talking about this whole time, we all understand that, that helping others is ultimately the solution to this, regardless of the angle you came at it. Exactly. So you, you got to that, you got to a recovery program and have you ever had another drink since that day, Jeff? No, no. And in, in fact, the some people are actually troubled by my experience because it, it, it wasn't that rocky road. I believe I just kind of took all my lumps and bumps in the road prior to coming. I was exceptionally stubborn. <laughs> I wasn't going to come to recovery until it was change or die. You know? And as a result, I went to one meeting. And then I found this person that filled me full of hope. And I didn't even go back to another meeting until I was done being taught the 12-step process by this person. I had gone through most of the steps within the matter of a couple of weeks. And things were rapidly, rapidly changing and getting better. I actually was sponsoring another person at two weeks sober. Well, that, that's amazing. But I walked into that first meeting and have never had another drink since. So that's unusual in recovery. Yes. Um, that is not me. God did that. And God had a plan. And at that first meeting I went to, there was a guy named Sammy Ag, and, and God rest his soul, he died of cancer a couple of years ago. But he said to me, don't drink and come back tomorrow. And somehow that clicked with me. Somehow it was, you mean it's that simple? Yeah, just don't drink and come back tomorrow, and we'll take it one day at a time. Now, as I said, in my case, it was eight or nine years of not drinking one day at a time before I realized so something's going on here. I'm not getting any better. And in fact, after I stopped drinking, which was in 1998, I got in more trouble after I stopped drinking than I had prior to drinking because I didn't stop living the life, you know, the gangster life. You know, I... I I had this idea in my head of how things should be done, and it wasn't the right way. And, you know, it took, it took years and years of pain, going to prison twice, so I, before I could learn there was a different way. And we're going to talk about that different way when we come back from this break. back and before we start this segment if you have questions for jeff or karen or i call 570-883-0098 we'll be glad to answer your questions we'll be glad to include you in the discussion if there's somebody listening that wants help 570-881-5825 call me i'll uh, after the show and and i'll do anything i can to help anyone listening all right so jeff before the break now we were talking about the fact we're we're, we're in recovery now and 
recovery for me is based on 12 steps. And in those 12 steps, it walks, it gives us an outline to live our life, right? And even people that aren't in a recovery program should find themselves a copy of those 12 steps and read them. And, you know, be, the world would be a kinder, gentler place if, if everyone, and this is my opinion, of course, I mean, I, that everyone could live through those 12 steps. But when I, I came to recovery, I stopped drinking, and my life got worse. And during the break, I was telling Jeff and Karen, and Karen knows this, she knows my story, um, that my life got worse after, Jeff, I stopped drinking. Without, without alcohol, I was able to make a bigger mess than I had with alcohol. I guess I was too drunk to make a real big mess. But, you know, I didn't go to prison until I was eight years without drinking. And, and that was for stuff that I had done in business, some white-collar stuff that I had done that, you know, with a clear mind, do you do those things? I don't know. I can't answer those questions. I, you know, hindsight again, we you know, can't look backwards. I did those things, and I paid the price, and so did my family. But I honestly believe that that, that I had to travel that road to get to this spot I am in today, that the only way to get where we are, all of us, is to travel the road that we travel, to, to take the beatings we take in addiction and even in recovery. You know, even in recovery, life isn't always peachy, is it, Karen? No, there's difficulties for sure, but, you know, today I have a solution, and it's way easier than it was when I didn't have a solution, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. All right, so Jeff, so now you're in recovery and you did work those 12 steps very quickly. And um, I don't know if, if we look at history of recovery, I think that's the way it was intended to happen, that, you know, jump right in and get this done, right? I, I believe so. You do, just like you said, though, you, you do have to be ready. You have to be at your bottom. You have to be prepared to do whatever it takes. There were things in these 12 steps that they were asking me to do that I was not crazy about the idea of. But my brain at that point in time was able to wrap around the, the absolute fact that it was something terrible was going to happen if I didn't do it. <laughs> now, that doesn't, fear doesn't bring about permanent sobriety, though. That, that is one of the absolute key elements here, that fear might keep me sober for a bit. You know, and that's something that a lot of literature repeats over and over again because they don't want us to miss that point, you know, that, that fear isn't a permanent solution. It might get you to the gate, but eventually you have to do this because it's the life you want to live. You know, it had to change from, oh, my God, I don't want to die to this is pretty amazing. I love helping people. That is eventually the transition that has to take place. And it is different for everybody how long that takes, how prepared you are to do the work to get you to the point where you can do that. You know? So the whole process, it, it, it happens in whatever time the individual needs it to. You know, I, I say all the time, I spent 18 years practicing selfishness and I got really good at it. So breaking that habit wasn't easy. But once I broke the old bad habit and put the new one of helping others in place, things started to, to change pretty rapidly. But yes, it seems like the, the threshold for pain seems to be different for absolutely everybody. So only you can decide how much suffering is required to get to that point where you're willing to do whatever it takes to fix the problem. And, and you said two words that have been very important in my recovery, fear and love. 
and and I like telling this little story, and and I normally, uh, but this is an important story in my recovery. I told you about Sammy Ag telling me don't drink and go back tomorrow. Well, here's the next story for my recovery, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to say his name because I, I want him to know he helped me, and, and the guy was Peter Romano, and um, when I stopped drinking, you know I, I was good friends with uh, his brother and. And he said to me, you gotta go see Peter. So I made an appointment. You had to make an appointment to see Peter Romano. And I had to wait two weeks to get this appointment. And then I went up to his office in Clark Summit and the, the secretary said, okay, sit out at the picnic bench. He'll be out to talk to you in a couple of minutes. And I waited like 45 minutes for him to come out. He sat down, I told him, like, I had three words out of my mouth. Like I stopped drinking, what do you think? And he stopped me and he said, all you need to know is there's only fear and love. And he got up and walked away. That was 20 years ago, and I don't think I've said two words to him since. And it took a long time for me to understand. He gave me the whole, he gave me the answer. Right there in, in one sentence, he gave me the answer. There's only fear and love. You're right. Fear cannot, cannot be the motivator to recovery. That you have to get over to the love side if you're going to truly recover. That fear is what caused all of my problems. Fear caused me to drink. Fear caused me to pay kickbacks so I could get a job because I was afraid I wasn't going to get another job. Fear caused me to go in bar rooms and throw hundreds of dollars around at a time to be a big shot because my I had to be a big deal. Fear isn't the answer. But how do I mitigate fear? I mitigate fear with, with, with a belief in a higher power. And, and that's the only way I can do that. Am I right, Jeff? That was absolutely my experience, and that that would line up with basically what we have, are taught in this twelve step process. Yes, it's you know, fear. Uh, the way I look at it, fear is my will, and love is is that higher power's will, and I get to decide every second of every day whose will I'm going to follow and live by, and and that is that is essential. Now, two of the major problems with that very simple formula is I didn't really know what either of those words meant at, at the time, of course. You know, uh, fear, I, most people are afraid to admit they're afraid. Well, well Jeff, I, as you say that, that's the thing that's coming to my mind. After not having had a drink for two weeks and this guy tells me fear and love are the only two things you have to worry about, I drive away saying to myself, this boy's a nut. <laughs> what is he talking about? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm a tough guy. I'm not afraid of anything in this world. You know, I've been everywhere. I've done everything. I'm not afraid. People don't even understand what fear is, let alone do they know how to manage it. I mean, identifying fear is 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 difficult, isn't it, Jeff? It, it's very difficult, and you know, this 12-step process really simplifies it, however. When you see this in its completeness, and you know, I, I, I am told frequently that I overanalyze and complicate things, but I am absolutely of the belief that the only way to actually simplify anything is to collect all of the data. <laughs> so I, I really need to understand what this word is, how this process works. And like I told you, at 13, fear is what ultimately st set the ball rolling in my alcoholism. If So if I don't know what it is or how to spot it or how to correct it, there is no fixing this. <laughs> okay, but you just said that you overanalyze. And just before I came here today, I had a phone call from a guy who's new two weeks walked in off the street and he's analyzing and he wants to go over things and like figure them out i mean i i don't know the man i just barely said i met him this morning i said hello to him i said to myself this guy's got to be an engineer 
I mean, because he's figuring every angle and he's figuring every turn in this project. In the beginning, I simply had to not drink. And that's all I could do in the beginning was not drink. And for me, not drinking lasted eight years. Karen, you had like a similar situation, right? You went a while just not drinking, but that works out, right? Yeah, I mean, that was for, for, for the first four years, I just didn't drink and I analyzed and I still was using my will and trying to work every angle because I was still holding on to my pride and ego and all that other stuff that all that other uck. <laughs> and until I hit an emotional bottom, it was my, I had to hit an emotional bottom. That's when I reached out um, to a person for, for help and who sat down with me and went one-on-one -on -one through the 12 steps about Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I, I, I like to explain this because there are families out there listening right now that think if their loved one puts down the bottle or puts down the needle or puts the bag away that they're done. That, you know, okay, they're better. And that's, and that's not the case. Recovery starts at the end of that process. When you get detoxed from whatever it is you're using, that's when recovery begins. And that, that is, that's hard to understand. For as simple as this is, it gets complicated some days. And I think we're going to take another break here in a second, but Dr. Bob wrote a prescription, and I'm a prescription fan. And, you know, it, it's trust God, clean house, and help others. And I didn't start to get better until I started to understand that that's what was going on, that everything I had done up to that point of not drinking, going to meetings, doing stuff like that, was all building me up to understand that, I had to start thinking about other people and not thinking about myself. And so that that's where we're, you agree with that, right, Jeff? Absolutely, yes. And, and it, what, whatever it takes, again, for the individual to get to that point, I love the emotional bottom that Karen talked about because that, that's what it is. And whether you hit it two years before you came into recovery, the day you came into recovery, or 10 years after you came into recovery, that emotional bottom is kind of where you've got to be at. And you know, one of my absolute favorite things I ever read was, we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. It, it isn't enough. That is the first of 12 steps is putting down the drink or the drug. The other 11 are going to teach us how to live how to find this higher power, how to help others, how to clean up the mess that we've left in our wake. So there's a lot more to it than just I don't drink anymore. You know, and and it, I feel like some that's missing from a lot of modern-day recovery, and people aren't getting the full benefit of actual recovery. You know, so you're right. There's a big difference between I don't drink anymore and I am sober and living again. <laughs> right. Stopping, stopping whatever your drug of choice is, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, that, that's just the beginning. That's not the end. I mean, when we stop using, now what are we going to do? We, we all agree that when we're, we're, whenever we started, uh, uh, whenever we started using we were trying to hide something. We were trying to bury something. Now we're not using. Now what do we do? And we'll talk about that in our last few minutes. This is WYLK, powered by Sherwood Chevrolet Buick GMC. Online at SherwoodChevrolet.com. Okay, uh, we're back, and we've got a few minutes left. And um, 
So this this recovery is about other people. It's it's not about me. And this radio show is not about me. This radio show is about spreading the message that recovery is possible and that we're willing to help anyone, anyone at all that reaches out and wants help. We're here to help. So, Jeff, what what does that mean, helping others? I mean, you write a daily inspiration, which you see I copy. I plagiarize almost every day and stick on Facebook, you know. So, so what is helping others, Jeff? To me, it's... Uh it's the the genuine version of it like we talked about earlier i i, I don't ever help people anymore looking for a, a backdoor return you know, and which is one of the most important things i think i ever learned i'll go into a a, a brief description of this but nobody nobody minds but you know, seeing as though my problem at 13 started with a failed relationship and con and that that relationship problem continued on well into adulthood into into my 30s i still didn't know how to have a relationship properly and it was because the other side of that coin once i established that fear had cut me down and that love was going to lift me back up i didn't know what that word meant either <laughs> i i thought love was something i my significant other was tasked with supplying me with <laughs> and that's why all of my relationships failed i didn't understand that that love at least for me was not the two-way street that i had been taught my whole life it wasn't a you know there's a word in the dictionary that says we're going to give you something and you're going to owe us something back and that word is loan not love love is something i'm supposed to get from my higher power and give out freely to other people and not expect or demand anything in return from them you know and a lot of people hear that statement and think that I'm asking them to be a doormat and they should just keep giving and giving and giving while everybody else takes and takes and takes. And that's that's the opposite unhealthy extreme of it. I have to learn how to give love properly and let the law of attraction do its job. If I'm with someone who isn't reciprocating, the, the universe itself will have us drift apart as long as we let it. <laughs> as long as my fear of being alone doesn't keep me in bad situations and relationships, I can let that be what it is. But love in the way I understand it now is something, it works like electricity. There's a, a transformer on the pole outside that sends power into the basement of this building. and It goes from the basement through these switches to these light bulbs. It does not ever go from these light bulbs back outside to that transformer. <laughs> the building would burn down if it did because it doesn't work like that. And I don't believe that love does either. I believe that I get it from my higher power. That's where my supply comes from. And if I give it out freely to you, my higher power will replenish my supply. I don't need to demand it that it get reciprocated from, from my significant other. And once I started practicing unselfish relationships like that, they magically started working out a lot better than they had most of my life. And as we refer to love, Jeff, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's Sally and I'm in love with her and we're, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives with each other. The love that, that I talk about and think about is how I treat people. It's how I treat everyone. It's not just how do I treat people when nobody's looking? How do I treat people when I get nothing in return? How do I treat the guy on the street corner that is, is of no benefit to me? I'm going to get nothing from being nice to that man or helping that person. That's what I talk about when, when I mean love. Yeah, there is no quid pro quo. There is nothing getting back. If you can do that, if you can love, give to unselfishly, that's when you're really starting to feel a sense of recovery. 
right? Absolutely. And of course, myself, like everybody else, I don't practice it perfectly. But when I do practice it, it works perfectly. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter if I'm dealing with my significant other or the cashier at the grocery store. I'm supposed to treat all of these people the same way, the right way, unselfishly, caring more about them ultimately than I do about myself. Another one of my absolute favorite quotes is, you know, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. <laughs> so, right. It's not about us. It's about helping others. Exactly. Now, and here's, here's just a, a prime example of how this works in my life. Friday evening, I got a call from a guy who needed to get into a treatment program. He's called me three Fridays in a row. Same guy. He take him. He walks out the next day. I mean, that's his M.O. He's done it 15 times. Friday, he calls. I'm ready to go. All right. We go get him, get him in the car. Me and, and Tommy McHugh, we're driving him to the treatment center. Now, that's as good as it gets. I'm giving up my time. I'm doing everything I can for this young man. And a guy cuts me off on 81, and I flip out like, like he had just murdered my, my children. Now, so I go from loving this kid and trying to help him to being crazy instantly. Now, like you said, it can't be perfect. It, it just there's no way you can be perfect like that all the time the question is can you do it 51 percent of the time can you be more in the love side than in the crazy side some days yes some days no but i am i am completely certain that my only role in this world is to help someone else and i believe that we traveled the roads through recovery that we've all traveled all different all in recovery with one goal in mind to help others you do it by writing a book, Jeff. You do it by coming here today and sharing your message, and you speak a lot and talk about it by your daily inspirations. Karen does it by helping so many women that I know she helps, and Karen is probably the kindest person in the room today. I mean, she's always got a smile on her face. I do it the way I do it, but we can all do it some way, right, Karen? Absolutely. There's, I mean, many ways to do it, and I, I like to take it not not out just inside of the room of you know the rooms of um of the meetings but also outside it's it's about practicing this in our homes our jobs and just life and you know i have a therapy dog named rose i always have to get her name in there and i like to take her to nursing homes and hospice and that's a great way of giving back but it's you know it's just being a better human being in general and that's what that spiritual component of this uh, recovery has done for me. That's interesting you say that about about Rose going to the nursing homes. Lori Besden, who was the guest on here the first week of this season, has a pit bull, and uh, she takes her pit bull to a place called Memory Care in the Harrisburg area every weekend, at least once a week. And and the pictures of that dog with the people in um, in memory care, the dog's name is amazing, and, and they call her Maisie, and, and she's there with those people, it's beautiful, and, and that's giving back. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be you're, you're driving people to treatment. Everybody can help in their own way. Jeff, we got about two more minutes. Come on, keep talking, buddy, because I love listening to you. All right, well, that, that's a great point. And part, the, first of all, the 12-step process exists because we can't practice it perfectly. None of the 12 steps say you're never gonna have a problem ever again. Mm. The, 
The 12 steps don't promise us Cadillacs and caviar, do they, Jeff? No, they promise us that if we stumble upon a problem in our daily life, there is a solution to it. So you're going to have problems. Here are the tools to fix them when they arise. So we, we, that's what they're there for. And, and part of that 11, that 12-step that process, in the nighttime 11-step, it asked me exactly that. It said, did you think about yourself most of the time, or were you thinking of others of what you could pack into the stream of life? And that's what we're all here to do. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Karen, for being here. This has got to be the fastest hour of all time <laughs> in, in the history of this show. Um, you want help? 570-881-5825. Come back next week and listen to us again, and we'll see what we can do to help others. You got one closing thought for us, Jeff? Find somebody to help in whatever way you can. Karen, what's your last thought here of the day? Uh, I mean, just, you know, if you're struggling out there and you're just, you need some help, I mean, you got you got a lot of great recovery in this in this community. Just reach out and, and get vulnerable because it'll be a blessed life. You'll have a blessed life. All right, for everybody listening, next week we got Vance Johnson uh, from, played for the Denver Broncos, and what a story he has. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.